If you turn with me in your Bibles today, we're going to be in Proverbs 18. Proverbs chapter 18, where we're going to start. I think we're going to land in Romans. But today, I just want to talk to you for a few minutes about your tongue. Do you know if you brush it, you won't have such bad breath? That's not what I wanted to bring up about the tongue, but that is true. So if you didn't know that, try it. Uh, I want you to realize how powerful it is. I want it to be a reminder, and, and we've talked about a couple of the things we're going to talk about. We've probably we've talked about them before in different messages and stuff. But this week I was reminded of just how powerful your tongue is, just how powerful our words are. Sticks and stones can break my bones, and words can never hurt me. You ever heard that? It's a lie. That's not true. In fact, I can show you from what I looked up in my studying this week, I found eight verses that say that's a lie. Words can be life or death. Words can kill. The word fire comes to mind. Ready, aim. James 3, 1 tells us that words or the tongue in your body, the example that he uses is it's like a bit in a horse's mouth or like a rudder on a huge ship. And it can turn that giant powerful thing wherever it wants. This little bitty metal bit can turn a 2,000 pound horse. It can stop it, turn it left, right. A tiny little rudder can turn a huge ship. And that's what James, Jesus' brother, that's what he says your tongue is like on your body. So you can be so powerful and you can have all these giftings and talents and you can have everything, but if you don't have control of your tongue... You're reckless. Your tongue is a powerful thing. There is life and death in the power of the tongue. So Proverbs 18, 20. Let's read that, and then we'll talk for a minute. Proverbs 18, 20. A man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth. And with the increase of his lips shall he be filled so, this scripture tells us that what you speak is what you are full of. You say, you're full of. What are you full of? This scripture says it's what you're speaking, that you're eating your own words. So, think about that for a minute. What you choose to walk around and say every day, that's what your belly is full of going around. And look at verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. You are eating fruit off of the trees that you are creating with your words. That's what Solomon was telling us. The wisest man that ever lived wrote this down for us to learn from. 
So imagine that your words every day, the things that you do with your words, the things that you speak to other people, you are creating or growing this garden. And then you yourself are eating the fruit of your own garden. That's cool if you've been sowing some good words and if you're speaking in faith and, and you're speaking in love and gratitude and all. Awesome. But what if you're walking around speaking death? What if you're constantly speaking negativity? What if you're constantly just gossiping? Or That's what you're eating. So what Solomon's saying is you are eating your words. And have you ever heard that saying, you are what you eat? It's true. So you're eating your words. I mean, thank God that the little Christmas tree snack cakes are made by little Debbie. And I would like to eat those and just think they just disappear as I eat it. And it never shows up anywhere, but it shows up. They show up on my body. For me, they show up on my thighs, then my belly. Depends on how many I eat. But we think sometimes that, that we can just speak whatever we want, and then that just goes away and disappears. It doesn't. You are what you eat. It's very hard to walk around spewing words of doubt and negativity and fear and then say, I am a person of faith. It's like, no, you're not. That's like me walking around eating those little Christmas tree little Debbies for every meal and then standing here and saying, I am a bodybuilder. And you're looking at me and I've got a big fat belly. And you're like, no, you're not. In the spirit, that's what a lot of people do. And then when they say what they are or what even what they're called to be or what God called, it's like, something's not matching up here. You are what you eat. You're eating your words. So with your words, you're sowing seed and you'll eat the fruits of your labor. The power of life and death are in the tongue. We just read it. And you're eating your words. So I don't live in fear of what I say, but I do have discipline on the things that I say. And I've gotten a big reminder of that this week just to remind myself, check the things that I I say. Check the conversations that I'm allowing other people to say to me. Is it life or is it death? Discipline. It takes some discipline sometimes. And here's a good judge because sometimes the water gets muddy. Well, it needs to be talked about. We need to work through it. Or we, you can, there's all different ways. Well, we need to pray for her. Or we need, but a general rule of thumb is if you're talking to somebody that has no power in the situation or no way to make it better or to help the situation, then it's gossip and it's death. But if you are talking to somebody that can help the situation or that's involved in the situation, okay, then it's growth in relationship and that's okay. Jesus did that. But not death. In the same way that you would have a disciplined diet, 
you should have disciplined words. And automatically when we hear the word discipline, sometimes it seems like kind of a bad thing. Like, oh, discipline. I don't want to be disciplined. But when we think about a disciplined person, that's a compliment. He or she is very disciplined. That's a compliment. There are zero professional athletes that aren't disciplined. I can't find any. They may have an area of their life that they're not disciplined, but you're not going to be the best in the world at anything with no discipline. Discipline is a good thing. He chastens or disciplines those that he loves. So we should have disciplined words. Because your diet, just like your diet affects the way your body looks, your words affects your soul. It affects your spirit, your presence. If you could think of your words as food, you might be a little more careful about the things you're spitting out there. I can bring some nasty stuff in here and y'all aren't going to even think about eating it. Here you go, I got this possum off the road and cut it open. Anybody want some for lunch? And I doubt, doubt any of y'all are going to take it. But we don't think of our words that way. If we thought of it as food, we might be a little more careful about what we were speaking. Think of it this way. Words are the vehicle for your faith. You want to go places? You want to have big faith. Words are the vehicle. So, words create value. And we know this. But we can use our words to create value. If you give me long enough, I could probably convince you, well, I don't want to use anything up here, how valuable Bo's T-Rex is over here. Azalea places great value on it. She found it in the class last week. Y'all saw her. She came up in the middle of the worship service to give it back to Bo. With your words, you can place value on someone else. With your words, you place value on God. Your words reveal what is valuable to you. And if you let somebody talk long enough, they can place value on something with their words. We had a little fantasy football league with just guys in the church. And I know they're not here today, but Hunter Hawkins can place value on a sorry NFL player if you give him long enough to talk. He'll make you think he's worth something. He's got a great playoff schedule coming up. He can, he's going to win. And, and then he will devalue your player that he's trying to trade you for and tell you how they're injury prone and how, you know, their coach drafted them and there's no chemistry there. But this guy, he's trying to trade you. He went to college with the quarterback and he's just about to get his shot. He places value on with words. Is RJ in here? I was going to say. Oh, he's in class. I was just going to say, RJ can probably confirm that. He, Hunter can place value. Or Dylan told me this week that uh, they were going to let the rainbow 
vacuum salesman talked to them for a friend and it's a $3,000 vacuum cleaner that they were going to try to sell you and it was just kind of a joke and we'll get a free air purifier by letting them give us this spill and there's no way we would pay $3,000 for a vacuum cleaner. By the time they were done, Dylan's trying to figure out how to finance it. Because with his words, he convinced Dylan that this vacuum cleaner was worth three grand. <laughs> they didn't get it. Because he has a voice of reason. Named Rachel. <laughs> no. But with your words, you can place value on something. Right? If I walked up to Dylan before he heard that speech and said, you want to pay $3,000 for a vacuum cleaner, he'd probably laugh at me. Give me 30 minutes and let me talk you into it. Your words can place value on something that wasn't there before. If we're created in God's image and our God is the creator and he used his words to speak everything that we see into existence except for us. He bent down and made man with his hands and he blew the breath into him with a kiss. But everything else that we see, he spoke into existence with his words. He created and he created us in his image. So the words that we're speaking every day, we're creating. And we create this life that we live and we create relationships and we, we place value on things. But if we use all of our words placing value on things that are carnal or things that are fading or going away or things that are not worthy of value, then it's death. It doesn't last. It goes away. It doesn't change the world or propel us toward our purpose or strengthen our faith and our hope and our love. It, it doesn't. It's just death. And not even bad things. Not even just talking about sin. Just things that... We better keep moving. Your words. They can create value. So, we think it's okay to devalue ourselves. Or to devalue someone else. Guarantee you, everybody sitting in here, you can think of probably sometime in the last week that... You have used your words to devalue someone or someone has used words talking to you to devalue someone or yourself or you've heard someone else using their words to devalue themselves. I guarantee you. But your worth comes from your maker. And God calls us all his sons and daughters and we're all created in His image. So, so you devalue something that God created is for you to disagree with God's Word. It is for you to directly oppose what God says. That's not life. We all fall. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. And there's one thing you have to do if you want to go from your falling to your calling. One thing. Get up. You get up. You keep moving forward. You don't stay down. 
like, like we just talked about in the worship service about breakthrough. Just don't stop. You'll get through the wall. And now some of you can get through a lot faster. You don't keep on falling because it's going to take longer to get there. But you just get up. Even Superman had kryptonite. Something that stopped him or held him back. What I'm saying is don't think that you're untouchable or I'm telling you just speak these words and you'll fly by. Yeah, you'll still have some problems. You might fall down. It's okay. Get up. Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride comes before a fall. Don't get all puffed up with, with pride because usually it's out of a, pre, a place of pride that you would devalue God's kids because you think that they're worse than you for whatever reason. Or you want to make it look that way. Christians should be known for their compassion. We want to be Christ-like. Jesus was known for his compassion. Christians should be known for their compassion, not their criticism. And a lot of times it, it seems like the church or Christians or people that identify as Christians, they're known more for criticism than they are for compassion. They can tell you what you're doing wrong real quick. Churches and religion and Christians themselves, a lot of times it seems like we're known for criticism and that's not what we should be known for. It's like, what lens are you looking through? You know, the old example, if I put on some red glasses, then the whole world looks red. If I put on yellow glasses, everything looks yellow. But guess what? If I have a smashed and broken pair of glasses and I choose to put those on and wear those every morning, then the whole world is broken. And every person I look at is broken and I see their brokenness. And it's my perspective. It's the lens that I'm looking through. I'm not looking through the lens that God has. I'm not seeing people the way that God sees people. Because if I was, I would have compassion. Looking through a lens of brokenness. What lens are you looking through? We've got to learn to see people the way God sees people. Labels or names that are put on people, they're not always true or right. Was Clint black? Was Barry white? Was Marvin Gaye? Was George Strait? Stevie Wonders. <laughs> okay, so we come back from that. I apologize. Lord, I apologize. Last night we were at the football game and I was noticing something. Nobody cheers for the ref. They, they, they scream insults at them. They throw criticism at them. They tell them they're an idiot. They tell them, let me think of some things that I can say in church that I've heard yelled at refs that are okay to say pitiful. I heard that one a lot. Pitiful. You're pitiful. 
screaming all kinds of things at ref, but people don't cheer for the refs, right? We cheer for the players. We want the players to do well because they're in the game. A player can do what he's called to do and what he's been coached to do and, and how he's done these steps of obedience and worked out and done the training and he's following the voice of his coach and he can win the game. A ref can't win the game. No, a ref can't win the game. The players can win the game. And as Christians, we're playing this game of life and church is just the huddle where we come in to get the plays. Right, like this is what we're supposed to do next and then Monday morning we get to go out and run the play. So when we're all in the huddle and we're getting the play, but here's the problem. A lot of us Christians, we come in together in the huddle on Sunday morning and we hear God's voice speak and we're in worship and we hear uh, some great word or, or we get a word from somebody else or somebody prays a prayer over us and we get the play. Okay, here's the play. And then we step out of the huddle and instead of lining up on the line of scrimmage, we start booing. Or we start telling how you're not doing it right or this and that. And then we don't run the play. Titus went through, what, a year or two ago? I guess a couple years ago he went through. He was really trying to get some jerseys of players that he liked and wanting to order jerseys and looking at them online and getting jerseys. And you know what? He bought several different jerseys of players that he likes and stuff like that. He even bought me one for Christmas. Was that two, couple years ago? He bought me a Matt Ryan jersey because he knows I really like him. But guess what? He didn't even price the ref jerseys. He didn't buy any ref jerseys, didn't buy me one for Christmas. Mm -mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can buy them. <laughs> but he didn't want to buy it. He didn't ever look at a ref and think, man, I want his jersey. Wow. What a great player. Why? Because a ref didn't win the game. He just spent all of his time pointing out what everybody did wrong. Oh, you jumped over the line. You did this wrong. You did that wrong. You held. You broke the rules. You messed up. You, Oh, wait a minute. It's starting to sound like what some Christians in churches think their job is. Offsides, horse collar, face mask. Come to the altar, face masker. That's not our job. We're players. So I'm telling you today, you're a player. You're not a ref. You are a player on the team. Run the play. Block for somebody. So ask yourself that question today. In my life, am, am I a ref or am I a player? Am I advancing the kingdom or am I just pointing out why we're not advancing the kingdom? You can point out value. I can point out value on every person in this room. 
I can choose to, or I can point out a problem with every person in this room. It's my choice. Words are life. Look what Jesus said, John 6, 63. John 6, 63. In this, it is the spirit that quickeneth. That word quickeneth is makes alive. It is the spirit that, that quickeneth or makes alive. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Proverbs 18, 7. Fools are undone by their big mouths. Their souls are crushed by their words. Do you ever feel like your soul is just crushed? Have you been speaking a lot of foolish words? That's what Solomon said. Speaking a lot of foolish words, it'll crush your soul. I don't want to have a crushed soul. Check your words. Listening to gossip is like eating cheap candy. Do you really want that junk inside your belly? That's how the Message Bible says. Proverbs 18.8. I don't think I gave that one to Ben either. Your words matter. Words make a difference. So, last week we talked about leaning into the whisper and hearing God's voice and being led by His Spirit and how important that whisper is and being all of that. And that there's one voice that matters because you're going to hear a lot of words. You're going to have to figure out how to not let them stick. Uh, You can't let them stick to you and become part of who you are. Become what you look like. There's one voice that matters. So how we started out with like sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. They can. Words can never hurt you. If you let them. So I'm going to close by looking at a couple of couple of sticks and stones in Numbers 20 we see a stone this is when Moses had taken God's people out of slavery and then came the children of Israel even the whole congregation into the desert of Zin in the first month and the people abode in Kadesh and Miriam died there and was buried there That was Moses' sister, Miriam. She had been with him the whole time since God had called him to this purpose, and he went. And and so his sister died there. And there was no water for the congregation. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Because they didn't have water, they started using their words and gathering themselves against Moses and Aaron. I, 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 I can't believe we don't have any water. We're going to die. And the people chode with Moses. And they spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord? I wish I would have died when the rest of our people died. 
I've got to be alive and walk around with you and thirst to death. And why have you brought up the congregation? Why would you bring us here? You were slaves. God's done all these miracles and you're free and you're walking in freedom and now you're using these words to complain, to attack your leadership, to, to convince yourself that you were better off as a slave. That's what they're doing. They're complaining. They're talking bad about Moses, talking bad about Aaron. Of the Lord unto this wilderness, that we and our cattle should die here. Not only me, but my pets and animals are going to die too. It was all because I listened to you and followed you. And wherefore have you made us to come up at come up out of Egypt? Now he made them come out of Egypt. Moses didn't make y'all come out of Egypt. Get out. No, he set you free from slavery. But you see, with these words, now they got a whole different story cooking. They want somebody to point their anger at. right? They're mad because things aren't turning out like they thought. They're, they're mad because they don't have the provisions that they need. They're mad because they don't have water. They're mad because they think they're going to die. So, And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. They went to talk to God about it. And they fell off fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod. Hey, we remember that rod, right? Moses had the rod. It was something from his past. It was used for identification purposes. He was a shepherd, and they would have carved on the rod. It would be kind of like an ID card for us. And we've looked at the rod before. Well, then when God did his first big miracle after the plagues, after they were set free, was Moses took the rod and parted the Red Sea with the rod. So, yeah, we know this rod. Take the rod and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. See, there's the rod, a stick and a stone. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock so you see what God said speak to the rock so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts to drink and Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him alright he's walking in obedience but I think Moses let some of those words stick Right? I think I think Moses got a little mad at the people. How dare you? I sacrificed everything to lead you. Man, I've walked with you for years trying to help you find freedom. And now you turn on me. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together. They're, they're doing what God told them to do before the rock. And he said unto them, Hear ye now, ye rebels. Hold up, bro. God didn't say, what, what are you doing? That's not what God said. You're adding stuff. I can hear it in his voice. Hear ye now, ye rebels. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? 
bro, you're not getting water out of the rock. God is. That's not what God told you to do is to make this big show of it and act like it's your power and your strength and what you're about to do and you're trying to look like you're all big and bad to justify and show that you're not the bad leader that they said you were. That you didn't mess up. That you did hear God all this time. But instead of obeying with a humble spirit, you're letting your anger, you're letting a little pride, you're, you're needing to justify yourself. Now Moses is using his words for death. Verse 11, and Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod, he smote the rock twice. Well, that's not what God told you to do. God said, speak to the rock. He's taking the rock, and he's taking his rod, his stick, and beating the rock, smacking it. He hit it twice, and the water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank, and their beast also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron. He said, Because you believe me not, to sanctify me and me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Because they disobeyed. Because he got mad. He got upset and frustrated and went back to the old way. Went back to the rod, the past, what he knew, how God did it last time. I mean, that's how God worked last time was with this thing, so I'll use it again with a little bit of anger. So Moses, he was 120 years old at this time. And and his sister just died. We read that at the first part of the chapter. And these people will not stop. He got mad. He lost his temper a little bit. I think it's pretty funny that in Numbers 12, 3, it says that Moses was the most humble man in the world. And Moses wrote the book of Numbers. He wrote that about himself. You're not the most humble man in the world if you wrote it about yourself. <laughs> and now, what happened? He lost his temper. Pride welled up in him. He lost his temper. Obviously, that wasn't even one of his issues. Because he, he even wrote about himself, about how chill he was, about how humble he was, how he never lost it. And this is where we see he lost his temper, he acted in pride, and that kept him out of the promise, out of all that God had called him for. What I'm trying to say is he failed in his strength. We get comfortable in our strength. Oh, I'm strong enough. I can do that. I won't be tempted. I can get through that. I can, 
I've seen it over and over again. That's when you mess up is when you think you're good. You let your guard down. Or that's an area, oh, that's fine, I won't mess up. Moses failed in his strength. Unguarded strength. I think about the story of David when he was just a boy in 1 Samuel 17 where you know the story of David and Goliath where David shows up and the big giant screaming and hollering and David's a picture of Christ and Goliath, the Philistines, the uncircumcised Philistines, a picture of flesh and David shows up and, and David had his staff. If you go read the story, David had a staff and a sling. He had a stick and he bent down and he picked up five st smooth stones. So he had a stick and some stones too. And when that giant showed up and he ran down the hill, we know that David killed the giant, the flesh. In 1 Corinthians 10, 4, I believe it is, uh, Paul tells us that the rock that Moses hit, the rock in the wilderness, because the Old Testament is symbols and shadows of what was to come. Paul tells us that that rock was Christ. So Moses took his stick, past knowledge, and he hit the rock. David had a staff. But when the giant was screaming and he ran down the hill, at some point David dropped his staff. And he let the rock of grace kill what he could not. He had to be willing to let go. Once he released that rock, five is the number of grace, the five stones that David picked up. So once David released that rock, that grace, that was him releasing control to God. That's what God wanted Moses to do was to let it be on me. But Moses tried to control it and do it with his own stick by smacking the rock. Well, David didn't run up to old Goliath and start smacking him with his stick. He had to let go. He let go of the stick and he let that rock fly and kill what he could not. And Isaiah 28 and Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2, they all call Jesus the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, the foundation of what it is that God is trying to build in us, in the church. And after the cross, how God came and put his spirit in each one of us so that we see that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation. He's the rock. Let me read you 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2, 5. Ye also... As lively stones are built up a spiritual house. Lively stones or living stones, some translations say. A holy priesthood. 
For what? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. He made a way. And God is building something. Will you be a part of it? You're just a brick. All in all, you're just a brick in the wall. One brick isn't powerful on its own. One brick just laying there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, cool, it's a brick. But when a bunch of bricks are put together and held together by mortar and designed by someone bigger and more powerful and put into place... They can create some awesome things. When I think about things that you can do with a brick, it can be destructive or it can be awesome. You can use bricks to build an orphanage or you can use a brick to bust out a window and rob something. Depends on what you do with it. What are you going to do with that rock, the stones that we are? Living stones, as, as Peter called it. He said, we're living stones. We're living, breathing, building materials. Well, that's a weird metaphor there, Peter. We, the church, we Jesus followers, we Christians are living, breathing, building materials. Peter's trying to to paint this picture here and and get this point across that God is building a living, breathing family. Paul likens it to a body, that we're all one body with many members. And Peter says that God's building a family, a living, breathing family with Jesus as the cornerstone. So we close in Romans 7. Show you what Paul said. I'm going to read it to you in the Message Bible. Romans 7 14. I can anticipate the response that is coming. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes. I'm full of myself after all. I spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is the best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. I think we can all kind of put ourselves in that boat. Okay, God, I, if, I can't even make myself do it. I, I, I know what I need to do, and then I find myself doing the wrong thing. So, God, your command is necessary. Your words are necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, And if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. 
Paul's like, I, I can't do it. I need help. I can't walk in this purpose that God has for me. I realize that I don't have what it takes. Oh, there's a big key. I don't have what it takes on my own. I don't know how to make this miracle work. I, I can't do it by myself. I don't have enough money or I don't have the education or I don't have like huge key right there. Paul says he realized that he can't do it on his own. I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decided to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyways. My decisions, such as they are, they don't result in actions. Oh, so I come into the huddle, and I hear what I'm supposed to do, and I, I hear the play, and then I, I don't run the route. I don't block my man on Monday morning. I get run over, and I'm sitting on my butt again. This is what Paul said. Something has gone wrong deep within me. And it gets the better of me every time. My God. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but... It's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in the delight. Parts of me covertly rebel. And just when I least expect it, oh, they take charge. It wasn't me. Stop hitting yourself. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question, Paul says? Is there anyone that can help me out? Is there no one that can do anything? Isn't that the real question? The answer, now he's going to give the answer. Thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. The answer to all of those questions that Paul just said, then he gives us the answer. The answer is that Jesus can and does. He already did, and he's strong enough, and he's powerful enough, and he knows how to do what we don't. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all of my heart and mind, but I am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. You ever felt like that? I want to serve God with all of my heart, all my mind, all my soul, all my strength, like Jesus said. But there's this pull sometimes. It just hits me out of nowhere. Jesus can and did. Well, what's the key? Knowing who you are and what you speak. I heard, you, you can go look this up. There's a story about a guy named Benjamin Kyle. 
if you want to look it up and read, it's pretty interesting, and I won't be able to hit all the details here. But Benjamin Kyle, has anybody ever heard of a guy named Benjamin Kyle who was found naked in front of a dumpster in a Burger King in Georgia? Levi? Benjamin Kyle was a 50-something-year-old man, and when one of the Burger King workers walked out to take out the trash, he sees him laying in front of the dumpsters, completely naked, covered in fire ant bites, unconscious. So the Burger King worker freaked out and called the police, and, well, by the time the police got there, the guy woke up. They called paramedics, and... They're trying to find out who he is. He had no idea on him. Obviously, he didn't even have clothes on him. And the guy had no idea who he was. He had no idea where he was from. He had no idea how he got there in front of those dumpsters. Nothing. So they thought he was lying. So they took him to the hospital and checked him out, and they did drug tests. He had no alcohol in his system and no kind of drugs. They did all kinds of evaluations of him and stuff, and they determined that it was one of the most extreme cases of amnesia that we know of. This guy couldn't ever, he couldn't figure out. This was in 2004, and he could only remember a couple things. So they called him BK, BK Doe, because he was found at Burger King, and he was a John Doe. They couldn't figure out his name, so... He was known as BK Doe, and they say he wouldn't talk to anybody after a while because they were all thought he was an idiot, and he was scared, and he didn't know who he was. He didn't know the answer to the questions. Uh, nurses at the hospital were trying to talk to him, and he was rude to him and mean to him at first. And if you go read the story, like, then he finally warmed up and tried to talk to him, to this one nurse and different people, but he didn't know who he was. He didn't know who he's in relationship with. They kept asking him. They would try to jar his memory. Did he have kids? Did he not? Did he have a family? Like, he had to come from somewhere. This went on for 11 years. He was on every major news channel asking if anybody recognizes this guy. The FBI picked it up. And he is currently, to this date, the only person the FBI has ever listed as a missing person, even though they knew where he was. He was listed with the FBI as a missing person, and they knew where he was. But they couldn't figure out who he was. B.K. Doe. And then he changed his name. He thought he remembered his name was Benjamin and he was very sick of being called BK after Burger King. So Benjamin Kyle was a name he just made up. But he had no credit and no social security number and no driver's license and no nothing. He couldn't get a house. He couldn't go get government assistance. He couldn't get help. He couldn't get a job. Nothing. And he talks about how hard it was and it's a crazy story. Eventually, they tracked down some people that were supposed to be his family members, and then it just kind of disappeared, and there's no more. You can't find anything else, so I don't really know what what happened to him, but when I read that, it was it's this crazy story, and then I was thinking, 
like you think about that, he couldn't get a job, like he couldn't get a house. He didn't know who to trust. He was mean to people. He snapped on nurses that were just trying to help him because he didn't know what was going on. He was scared. He didn't know where to go or what to do. Do I have a home somewhere? Do I have, like, I don't know. Why? Why was he having all those problems? Because he didn't know who he was or who he was in relationship with. And it caused all kind of problems. And so, like, as I close the message today, I just want to tell you that if you don't know who you are, or if you've been allowing all these words to stick that other people are saying, the labels and the names and the words that they're saying stick to you and make you think that's who you are, or if you've been eating your own fruit and you've become what you eat and you don't know who you really are, you just think you are the lie, then it's going to make every aspect of life difficult. You need to know who you are and who you're in relationship with. That um, in Romans 7 that we just read, Paul was talking in, in another translation. In another translation, it says that you will be led by His Spirit. That you listen. And sometimes you'll go back to your old life. Like Paul was talking about the battle of the war. Sometimes you'll mess up. You'll make a mistake. That's not who you are. You got to remember who you are. Sometimes people will say, that's who you are. You're an idiot. Like sometimes you'll go back and it's not fun. And something is leading you calling you one scripture says even dragging you back the Holy Spirit will woo you and call you that whisper it's the voice of God and sometimes it doesn't even make sense when we hear this leading and calling and wooing like it why can't I watch that movie it's not bad I'm old enough we feel this calling, this wooing. Why well, can't I have a drink? It's not a sin. But for some reason, there's this voice, this calling. It's calling you to purpose. That's why our relationship with other stones other parts of the body like we just read it's so important people who are being led by the same spirit it's so important because you can't do it on your own if I ask you what your purpose is right, what your calling is and you tell me and it has nothing to do with other people that's not your purpose that's not a calling And we're being called and wooed and led by the same Spirit. And we're in relationship with each other. It makes it so much easier. 
Then what happens? The Spirit of Jesus activates your spirit, who you really are. And He leads you. Your focus is on God and His family and and building the kingdom. And even when you fall, you just get back up and you keep speaking life over yourself and your situation and, and the relationships and the people in your world and and you keep running the place. And sometimes it doesn't work out. And sometimes you don't score a touchdown and you keep getting in the huddle. And you keep hearing the next play. And you trust the coach. And you don't try to be the referee. You check your words. Make sure they're life. Because they've got great power. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thanks for speaking to us. Thank you for life. Thank you for all the blessings that you've given us. Help us to obey. Thanks for moving. Thanks for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.